when you start to simply ask the question to government, what does smart mean? Then you start to have a real conversation because oftentimes the feedback that you get is that, well, a smart nation is a nation that understands its citizens and their citizens' needs and the priorities of those citizens. And when technology can align to those priorities and be something that is beneficial to them, then I think you're going down the path of a smart nation. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallero, Esri Manager of National Government Emerging Business, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Jeff Peters, Director of Global Business Development for National Government at Esri, talk about the prerequisite of smart nations, understanding. Policymakers realize that becoming smart means using data and analytics to better understand and efficiently serve citizens. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigate how technology, including advanced location technology, is laying the foundation of digital transformation and smart national governance around the world. Jeff, hi. Thanks for being here with us. Hi, Mariana. With so many varied services and responsibilities that governments have at scale, how do they apply technology to their mission? If I was to think about the role of technology in the nation state, it really reflects in many ways the, the evolution of technology. Originally what was happening obviously was we were doing all of these tasks for a hundred years, probably in many ways, many, many hundreds of years. The first thing when you became a nation, you know, sort of drew on a piece of paper. If it was paper, you sort of drew your boundary and you drew your cities and then you drew your roads and then you drew your assets, and then you drew the people, and the population, and the, and the variance in the population. So you, you literally, in your mind, putting on a piece of paper, a map. So literally all we've done over the last 45 years is brought about digital transformation. It's a lot of those traditional maps that we've been building for a very long time with traditional cartography and bringing that into the technology age. We now moved into then this web paradigm or this cloud transformation in the 2000s. And the key for that was as we started to separate out or loosely couple these systems where the enterprise systems were in many ways hardwired. So if you made a change in the database, you also had to make a change in the application or the, or the business tier. You couldn't make uh, one change on an application to change the application. You had to change the database. So it was, it was very what they called a tightly coupled system. The cloud introduced federated, loosely coupled systems. And that brought about a whole transformation now. So the example would be is that you had infrastructure, hardware, as well as networks and routers. You could purchase infrastructure and then overlay on top of that your software and applications. That brought about uh, a lot of efficiency. It also brought about the ability to really create heterogeneous environments where you could start to in many ways, put together the Legos kind of approach on how you were building systems. You could grab some Amazon, or you could grab some Microsoft, or you could grab some Google, wire that together with your applications, and at that point, get scale at, at a national scale. Are there some specific technologies that are particularly important to governments to take heed? So from a technology perspective, um, I think the first thing that we see from a national government's perspective is really understanding uh, and in many ways inventorying their assets. Uh, oftentimes that's, that's natural resources, uh, whether that's uh, everything from forestry to mining to coastal protection. If they're a 
uh, a nation that relies a lot on, on the sea or ports, the first thing that we see is that oftentimes the analysis that they want to do is really an inventory of their assets. And, and being able to not only inventory those assets, but be able to do management of those assets. That's, that's really oftentimes priority one for many nations. The second thing in a spatial analysis sort of or location analysis perspective for a country typically then flows into uh, providing services. Uh, oftentimes those are citizen services. Everything from being able to think about uh, land ownership is oftentimes a significant concern because that's the really the underpinnings for, in many ways, a, a democratic nation is that you want to be able to uh, have an understanding of those, of your natural resources, then you need to go into land ownership. And frankly, that's one of the, still remains a significant challenge in a lot of third world nations is that the ability for them to be able to establish a cadaster or a land ownership. Because from there, when you have land ownership, then you can think about things of how do you uh, protect land ownership, but also in many ways, uh, how do you tax that ownership? And then once you establish land ownership, then you also have to start thinking about the common good in the context of everything from how do you protect you know, areas of like things like national parks or or coastal areas where it's really the role of the nation to have a good inventory of their assets, establish land ownership, and all of the benefits that come from that, and all the the economic benefits, quality of life, uh, everything from really allowing people to uh, build what we would consider to be uh, Western values in a nation around democracy. The, the, the next tier of that is uh, the common good, as I sort of talked about. And then the last one is really protection. In many ways, what I'm articulating is a is kind of a federalist view. But at the same time, if you think about it in that context, you know, you're allowing for a citizenship, creating areas of common use, protecting those areas of common use, and then you have to protect the nation from policing internally to protecting the citizens to to also uh, having and controlling your border and location analytics, location information, all of that plays in how a successful nation works. Jeff, how does location analytics shape and form public policy? So the way that they're using location analytics from a public policy perspective is first they want to be able to get their information out to their constituents. In the U.S., that's really a congressional district for a congressman or a state for the senator. They want to be able to communicate out their view on that policy could be everything from healthcare, gun control, climate policy, and in many ways, how the congressman or the senator at a federal level, uh, why they are taking the stance that they are taking. They often want to be able to communicate the success of a policy, the impact of a policy, things around air quality, water quality, where they've implemented a policy and how that benefits their constituents. We, we see this often in the West around uh, being able to talk about or communicate things around policies of how the quality of water has improved, the, the quality of air, which obviously the citizens care about because those are the things that uh, are often foremost in their mind, the quality of life kinds of issues. So they want to be able to, t the congressman and uh, the congresswoman, the senator, they want to be able to communicate that. So that's really an, an issue one. 
The third one, frankly, is that they want to use location analytics to communicate out why they are potentially going to vote the way that they are. And really what that means is that they're, in many ways, soliciting back from their constituents. And what they, the reason that they want to do that is oftentimes they want this two-way government. They don't want to just sort of, uh, well, in many ways they do that now in the context that you can write or call your congressman or congresswoman and then sort of react to that information. But really what they want is that, they want that real-time information. They want to overlay onto that map that location, they want to overlay uh, social media feeds, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the sorts of things so that they have a pulse of what's happening within their area of responsibility. So what we've seen is that location information and the map has really become a very powerful tool for interacting and communicating with constituents. The last one, frankly, is in using location information, especially demographic information, in thinking about elections. It is very common for elected officials to be working through a database of voter information and, frankly, understanding who their voters are. And the example could be that if my next-door neighbor, Mike, is very much a Republican, has voted Republican, for the last 10 years, uh, if I'm a Democrat running in that area, probably not necessarily a place that uh, I'm going to convince Mike to vote for me if I'm a Democrat. The converse of that is there's Democrats, somebody there, my next door neighbor is Carl. Carl uh, is very much a, a strong Democrat, has voted as a Democrat for the last 10 years. The thing that they're most interested in is the undecided voter, the voter that sometimes votes Democratic on a policy, but they'll vote a different way in the context of Republicans. So what we found is, is that from a public policy perspective, that information, frankly, and we saw that even in the Obama administration, who for the first time really used location analytics as a primary driver on how they were going to organize their volunteers, as well as the people that they were going to target to have conversations. And frankly, this is very well documented, it's really uh, in the Obama administration, they really credit that as really uh, their secret to success was leveraging location information at that detail level, at that voter level, and then focusing their resources to change, to, you know, to win the election. So what is the next step in the digital transformation of government? So now the next big shift is our ability to be able to uh, think about all processes in a digital way. So that really, in many ways, everything's now on the table. It's just not systems that basically were traditional uh, computer-based systems. It was really everything was on the table. How you get information from citizens. And it, it wasn't just you do a survey once every 10 years, like we do now. It's your ability to be able to have two-way interaction, to get feedback, to put out a, a policy, or to ask information of your citizens and get feedback quickly. So if you think about in the context of digital transformation, it's really the transformation of all government services into this new digital paradigm, which has then, frankly, led us to this, this new place where I think we are, and we're right at the beginning of it, and that is really uh, our ability to do AI in the cloud. But it's really, for me, it's just allowing computers and uh, algorithms to be able to start to solve a lot of the repeatable processes 
So the ability for the systems to be able to start giving us answers, and in many ways, intelligent answers. Instead of us physically walking down to the DMV and getting my registration, the new paradigm is now I go to the web and I do that sort of thing. I think what will happen in this new paradigm is you'll never go to a DMV ever again. It'll know who you are. It knows your car. It'll know if your car has gone through the smog test. All these sorts of things will be automated. There's a term out there, smart nations. And I wonder what it means to you and what is a smart nation and why is that important? When you start to simply ask the question to government, what does smart mean? Then you start to have a real conversation because oftentimes the feedback that you get is that, well, a smart nation is a nation that understands its citizens and their citizens' needs and the priorities of those citizens. And when technology can align to those priorities and be something that is beneficial to them, then I think you're going down the path of a smart nation. We all know that governments sometimes see transparency as troublesome or the mandate for transparency yes, is troublesome. Sure. How can technology help them find that balance once again? I think that the genesis of a transparent government in many ways was driven by the need to have access to government data. Actually, I think the genesis of it was journalists wanted to have access to data so that they could think about why is this policy or why is this decision being made? Show me the data. I think it applied to citizen science as well. So a nation that is transparent in the context of how it provides data, and and that's even gone through a lot of transformation because there was a big push to set up data.gov sites across, really, and it was a, a sort of a global push. But what they found was is that a lot of these data sites really became, they refer to them as data.dumps, which basically means government would dump information out there, but it wasn't, the data wasn't uh, usable. It wasn't actionable. It wasn't even organized in a way that you could do analysis on that data. So that really isn't what people wanted when they were talking about data and data transparency. What they really wanted was the data in many ways to be provided to them in a way that it was actionable. It was usable data. And they wanted it in a form in a way that it was accessible, but also in a way that they could understand it. And you didn't need to have a degree in data science or a PhD in data science to be able to analyze the data. So that's, I think that's where we are right now. And that's the appeal of big data analytics and data scientists is how do they take these treasure troves of, of information and be able to derive things out of that. Uh, how are maps changing other than just getting digitized uh, from a paper map to a digital map? Yes. Well, this is, uh, this is an interesting topic. Really what I think people mean when they say a map, some people mean a map is something that we've all used for hundreds, thousands of years. It's a cartographic representation of something on the earth. But the reality is, is that a map is, in many ways, it's location information. So we are really entering the, the time in which a map might no longer be a cartographic representation of things that are on earth. What if the map really just becomes a digital construct for how location information is used and decisions are made? So will we need visualization? Oh, we most definitely need visualization. 
uh, but how you visualize that digital map will not be the way that you visualize it now. We all know a 2D map, a flat map. We know a 3D map, that's a globe. We're now starting to understand a 4D map. So X, Y, Z, and T. Time. Time. Uh -huh. So that if you think about it in the context of now, we've got a time-based map. So X, Y, Z, T, which is really what IoT is all about. It's really the a real-time map. So now when you start to think about it in that context, what's the next generational map? This is my hypothesis on what that next generation map is. So the map will really just become a digital construct for how all of that information is made. That location will be so inherent in every decision that we make that we will no longer even refer to it as a map. It's just, it's wired into everything. To come back a little bit to the national government. Sure. Uh, <laughs> what do you think are the greatest challenges facing national government today? I think the, 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 the big ones, I think, it's how are they going to drive efficiency in a way that allows them to be able to bring in efficiencies and also improve uh, services. You know, it's the better, cheaper, faster analogy. So the challenges are the same, the tools are different. Yes, they, they are. I, I think the, you know, resources are always going to be scarce. Governments need to do more with less. There's an expectation of service delivery for government. They see their ability to be able to have a, a banking app and be able to you know, log into that, look at their bank balances, be able to deposit a check, transfer money, really from anywhere in the world in a secure way. You know, I, I log into my banking app pretty much anywhere in the world, frankly, and you can do those sorts of things. And there's a sense of trust. I trust the network. Uh, I trust the application. I trust the security that's built into that. I trust that bank and that banking industry. Government needs to get to that point where they can start to provide these services in the form factor and in a way that is really citizen-centric. We, we can do much better, and, and government knows they can do better. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Marianne. Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast, and thanks to Jeff Peters for explaining how location technology helps distribute the common good to citizens and grow national economies. To learn more, download our ebook, Making Sense of Digital Transformation, at esri.com forward slash wear. To keep current with new interviews, visit our podcast page at esri.com forward slash podcast.